So we're beginning this morning a new sermon series in the, in the epistle, the Pauline epistle of Philippians. And so I want you to take your Bible and open to the book of Acts, chapter 16. So this morning we will be in Acts chapter 16, and my title this morning is Welcome to Philippi. Um, the, 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 if you have read through Acts, you will know that Acts is an accounting of how the Pauline, how, how the gospel spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so Acts chapter 16 tells us about how the gospel left, left all of those areas and crossed over into Europe. And so the start of the church at Philippi in Acts 16 is an important milestone in the life of the church. This is the first church in all of Europe. This is it. The gospel has already been in several places before it ever comes to Europe. And so the gospel is about to set up a beachhead in Europe, and, it will, and this will ultimately lead to basically the gospel conquering Rome itself. Now, according to scholars, as we think about Philippi, um, this is a quote just about the town. And one scholar says this, Philippi was an ancient town having been renamed in 356 B.C. by Philip II of Macedon, because Philip is in Macedonia, after himself. With the expansion of the Roman Empire, it became a Roman possession in 167 B.C. But its greatest fame came from the fact that it happened to be the place where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius in the decisive battle of the Second Roman Civil War in 42 B.C. And so, um, Acts 16 is going to detail the beginning of this Philippian church. And this morning, I want to draw out four truths that we can learn and apply to our church. And we can ask ourselves, are we, do we see the power of Christ in our church as the church at Philippi saw the power of Christ in theirs, even though we're 2,000 years later? So, um, turn to Acts 16. Um, I'm not going to read the text as I, before I preach it. I'm going to read it as I do because we're looking at 34 verses together. And so here's my first of four truths. Number one, the Philippian church shows the power of Christ over the mission of his servants. This is one of the things that the Philippian church demonstrates. So look in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. It says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. The they there is Paul and Timothy, um, and uh, I'll get to whoever else was there in just a minute. So, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now this section here begins with Luke giving us the navigational headings of the trip as now they're taking boat, skipping across on their way to Europe. Now Paul sets out, um, it says there that Paul sets out by sea to Samothrace. You might not know anything about that, but that's where Mount Fingari 
looms over the island at 5,500 feet. You can Google that later on. It's also the island where they found the famous eight-winged victory sculpture in 1863 that now stands in the Louvre Museum. And from there, here's who's with them, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, who now joins them, went to Neapolis, which is the port city of Philippi. Now, according to scholars, Paul landed there somewhere between 49 A.D. and 52 A.D., and this is during his second missionary journey. Now, it's interesting here, in in verses 6 through 10, that Paul says that he had a different plan. Paul wanted to go over into Asia or into Bithynia, and it says there that um, God forbid him. Luke tells us they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from going to Asia. That puts the brakes on Paul's plans. It says, then he goes on to say that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now that's interesting, and I take that to mean the same thing. The, The Holy Spirit forbidding them and the Spirit of Jesus forbidding them is the same way of saying the same thing. The Spirit of Jesus is just another way of saying the Holy Spirit. We know that because the Holy Spirit always testifies and points to the Son. So what does Paul do? What does the company do? So instead of going to Asia or Bithynia, God calls them to go to Macedonia. Now, I don't know exactly how the forbidding or disallowing happened. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It could have been hindrances like the weather or travel conditions or sickness. Some scholars think sickness because that's why Luke joined them here, the good Dr. Luke. What we do know is how the direction for them came. God gave Paul a vision of a man standing in Macedonia crying out for help. And due to that fact, they, they then, uh, Paul takes it to mean, Luke tells us there at the end of verse 10, that God has called us to preach the gospel to them in Macedonia. That's what they concluded. God had called them to go preach the gospel to those in Macedonia. Now I want to say that that is the mission That is the mission, to get the gospel to all peoples for the glory of Jesus. That's the mission and calling of every Christian everywhere. Not just Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. That is the call of all of us in this room as well today. That call has not stopped. Jesus' name must be lifted up and exalted among the nations. And I want to say here that Jesus has every right... Here in this text, as he commands the mission of his servants, Jesus has every right to look at you and me and say, you're not going to do it there, you're going to do it here. Or you're not going to do it where you think is best, you're going to do it where I think is best. Here, going to Asia would not have been bad. Going to Bithynia would not have been bad. It was but God had a different plan. God says, no, you're going to Macedonia, into Europe, further away from your homeland, Because I have people waiting to hear the gospel in Macedonia. And I just want to say that God has every right to forbid us from one thing, even if it's good, to send us to another thing or another place of ministry of His choosing. That's what it means for Him to be Lord over our lives. None of us here have the right to say, I only serve Jesus as I see fit. Jesus, if He is Lord, He can tell us where to go, how to go, and how long to go. We don't make those decisions of ourselves. The question is, are you listening to Jesus when he calls? So first, the Philippian church shows us the power of Christ over the mission of his servants. The reason there is a church at Philippi is because God ordained that Paul 
and Silas and Timothy and good Dr. Luke changed their plans to head into Macedonia. The second truth we learn from Acts. The Philippian church shows the power of Christ being proclaimed to all people. Look at verses 11 through 15 at what happens when they get to Philippi. It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage, sorry, to Samothrace. I just told you about Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. That'll come up for more importance later. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now all throughout Acts, you need to know this about how the gospel moves from city to city and how churches are planted from town to town. All throughout Acts, Paul's normal procedure in church planning would be to go to a city, find a Jewish synagogue, preach Jesus to the Jews that were dispersed, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting on. And from there, he would go into the marketplace, the agora, where all of the, mar all of the goods were being dispersed and everybody was buying and selling in the marketplace, and he would preach Jesus to the Gentiles there as Lord of all. That Jesus is the promised coming Messiah to the, to the Jews, but he is the Lord of all to the Greeks and to the Gentiles. And so there, those who believed would be baptized and gathered into a church. But here in Philippi, we learn that there's no synagogue. Because Paul assumes there's a place of prayer because there's no synagogue in this city. They're so far away from Jerusalem now that there are not ten male Jews, which is what it takes to start a Jewish synagogue. And so um, the, we learn from the Torah, according to Jewish history, um, that it was a if the requirement of ten males wasn't present to start a synagogue, then the Jews of the area were supposed to meet in a quiet place near the river or sea. So Paul goes out on the Sabbath to the riverside to see if he can find some people at the place of prayer. Now Paul finds a group. He goes out on mission and he finds a group there waiting by the riverside. And here we meet Lydia. We're told she is a God-fearer. That means she's a Gentile who believes in the, Jew, in, Jewish, in the Jewish religion. She's a believer in Yahweh. And she is out there. And so um, we learn that the that the man actually in Paul's Macedonian vision is a woman. A woman who has been praying and being prepared and calling out to God, send us someone to help us. And now Paul meets Lydia. Notice that Luke, um, Luke draws attention to the fact that God was already at work in Lydia's heart. Notice what the text says. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is the critical verse in this section. Remember that Paul has come to Macedonia to preach the gospel. That's why he's there. That's what he's doing. He's proclaiming Christ. And while he's proclaiming Christ, Christ is at work in the hearts of the hearers. 
And I want to say that that is exactly the same for us today. We are still dependent on God's Spirit to work in the hearts and minds of hearers as we seek to share the gospel and proclaim Jesus. We cannot change anyone's hearts. We can't open the ears of those who, have, who do not want to listen. This shows the sovereign work of God in the planning of this church. Because this is only a work that God can do. Hear me. Because this is only a work that God can do, it is critical that all of us be praying week by week, day by day, that God would open the hearts of others as we share the gospel. That's what we have to be praying for. God, open the hearts of hearers so that you speak. That is our prayer this morning as we come into worship every morning as we gather and pray. Every Sunday morning as, as people gather to pray here at 8.30 and you're all invited to that, we pray that God would do this in our worship services. That God would put it in the hearts of those who need to respond to pay attention to the gospel that is being preached. Listen. This, this is, there's a lot of stuff that we can learn here, but I want to give you a, a, a principle. Wherever God is calling you, God called Paul and Timothy and Silas um, and Luke here. Wherever God is calling you, you can be sure that God is already at work there. You don't go anywhere where Jesus is not at work. If you think for a second you're going to go to some place and God is going to abandon you and God is not going to see it through with you, you are wrong. God is at work in all places, exalting his name. And if God calls you to go to Macedonia, he is there already at work. If God calls you to work with children in our children's ministry on Wednesday nights, God is not going to abandon you. He is already at work there, and he is going to meet you there, and you're going to see him at work. Our job as Christians is not to invite God to join us in our work. Our job is to join God in his work. God is the one who is at work all around us. If we just have ears to hear and eyes to see, we would see that he is just saying, come here, watch what I'll do right here in the life of this person. If you'll just open your mouth, trust me, and share the love of Jesus and share the gospel. That's what's happening here. We need to make sure um, that we are joining God in his work. But there's something else we can learn here. If God isn't speaking to us from his word when we gather... When we gather here, if God is not speaking to you from his word, then we need to pray that our own hearts would be ready. Like Lydia, we need to be praying that our own hearts will be ready to receive the word. Lydia is here praying and listening for God to speak. And God sent Paul here for just this moment. Like Samuel, we need to be praying, Lord, here am I. So, I'm sorry, Lord, speak, your servant is listening. Or like Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. Now, we're dependent on God to prepare hearts. And that also means that we each have a responsibility to make sure our own hearts are prepared. Now, at this moment, Lydia receives the gospel. She believes the gospel. And she becomes the first Christian convert in all of Europe. That's who Lydia is. She hears the gospel as Paul preaches and believes. And she is baptized in Christ's name. She even brings her family to hear the gospel and they believe and are baptized. And this is the pattern over and over again in Acts. Now here's the questions I have for us. Here's my question to you. Church, listen. If we're going to be like this church, we have to, we have, there's some things that we have to ask ourselves. First, are you proclaiming Christ to others? Are you doing that? Are you trusting Him to be at work in the lives of others through the sharing of Jesus? 
Because that's what's happening. God spoke to her through the word of Paul as he shared the gospel. So if you don't open your mouth and share, the power of God will not be unleashed towards others. Are you sharing Christ, trusting him to be at work? Or do you trust in your own abilities? Paul says, I don't trust in my own wisdom. Paul says, I, it's the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Everyone believes. It has nothing to do with how smart I am or how wise I am or how clever I am or how clearly I can communicate. Do you trust the power of God as you share the gospel? Do you, like Lydia, hear the voice of Jesus when he speaks and calls to you? Are you here to listen to Jesus as he speaks? That's why Lydia was out by the river in the place of prayer. Did you come here today with your heart prayerfully prepared to hear from Jesus? Did you come here today praying that God would speak to you and to your other brothers and sisters who would hear? Not in a mean way. I know how some of you are. You look over there and go, God, I hope you get a hold of that rascal right there today. I hope you really beat them up over the head. You know, that's not, that's not how we pray for God to work on people. You pray, God, work on me first. God, change my heart first. Give me a heart of forgiveness, a heart of repentance. Don't go and say, well, I'm sure I'm glad they were here today. They needed to hear that, preacher. They needed to hear that. You didn't need to hear that? I'm not here to speak to them. I'm here to speak to all of you. <laughs> Listen, don't, don't be that way, right? Here's another question. Is Jesus speaking to you right now? Is your heart ready to respond to his call to salvation? Is your heart ready to respond to his call to missions? Is your heart ready to respond to his call to service in some ministry or other place? Are you here ready? The Philippian church shows the power of Christ being proclaimed. Third truth, the Philippian church shows the power of Christ over spiritual opposition. I've got to go fast. Y'all got to listen better. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says that as they were going to the place of prayer, they've been in the city for some time now, some time has lapsed, and as they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her, and, sorry, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, so this is what's happening here as we see the power of Christ over spiritual opposition. Even though Paul and the company are now in Europe, spiritual opposition is universal. If there's anything in your mind that says that there's more spiritual opposition there than there is here, or there's more here than there is there, you are wrong. Jesus calls Satan the god of this world. His lies, influence, and presence are everywhere through his minions. We would be dead wrong if we thought spiritual opposition only occurs outside of the United States or in foreign lands. It's present, it's as present here in Huntingdon, even in our church, as it is anywhere else. Now in verse 16, if you look through the text, just walk through there. They go back to the place of prayer, slave girl comes up, um, she has a spirit of python, that's the literal Greek word there, the spirit of python. And python is Latin for serpent. Now, according to scholars, quote, python was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollos and was eventually killed by Apollo. Later, the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom python spoke. 
So she has a spirit of Python, a spirit of an evil spirit that is speaking through her, and her owners are making a lot of money because she can tell the future. And notice what she's saying over and over again in verse 17. These are the people, uh, these are followers of the Most High God proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Is there anything wrong with that? No. They're actually, she's speaking the truth. They are servants of the Most High God. They are pro- proclaiming the way of salvation. She even uses the same title that the demons used of Jesus back in Mark 5, 7. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. So why stop her? From Paul's perspective, there's a reason. From Paul's perspective, this is the enemy's attempt to infiltrate and subtly subvert the gospel message. It's a very sneaky tactic, but Paul won't have any of it. Paul doesn't need the help of a sly servant of divination. He just needs the power of God's Spirit as he preaches the gospel. That's the point. It's the Spirit of Jesus that's at work, not the Spirit that's at work in this young lady. So Paul, greatly annoyed, I I like to know that Paul does get greatly annoyed when he's doing ministry. Take that, that you can also get greatly annoyed while doing ministry. Um, And so that doesn't mean we do some of the other things that Paul does, but he turns around and he demonstrates the power of Christ over demonic spiritual opposition. And notice that Paul uses the same formula that all of the apostles have used in Acts to heal the sick and cast out demons. It's not in the name and power of Paul that he cast out this demon. He says that no, it's in the name and power of Jesus Christ. The Jesus that he's been preaching all along. And I just want to say that this is what the church does. A church that's going to be a church like the Philippian church is a church that has to face down spiritual opposition in the name and power of Jesus. Not in our name, not in our power, but in the name and power of Jesus. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and reminded him of this truth. Listen to what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not who we're wrestling against. We're not wrestling against the government. We're not wrestling against any other group of people. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is what we do. If we're going to follow after Jesus and proclaim the gospel, we have to stand firm in the face of spiritual opposition. Now, here's also a truth we can learn. Hear me. If we as a church aren't facing any spiritual opposition, if we're not facing any spiritual opposition, then we aren't probably doing anything of any kingdom value. That's what it means. If the enemy... It means that the enemy doesn't see any of us as a real threat to his schemes and plans. Spiritual warfare is real. It should be every day, and our church should be in the midst of this spiritual battle. Listen, the closer we draw to Jesus, and the more we seek his kingdom, the more spiritual warfare we invite. The more we are in rebellion against the enemy. The more we go after our neighbors... The more we seek to reach children and students, the more we call and challenge each other to make sacrifices to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, the more resistance and battles we will face. But it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Amen? If everything is always roses and puppies, and there's never any spiritual opposition to anything our church does, then we're not doing anything of eternal consequence. We have to remember that. 
we have to remember that, that God put us here for a purpose. The fourth and final truth we can learn is the Philippian church shows the power of Christ in the midst of persecution. Look there at verses 19 through 24. It says here, because everything turns here on a dime for Paul and the company. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, she's no longer filled with this spirit, she can no longer make them money. When their gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Then the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they, withdrew, they threw them into the prison, ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. So... After the enemy tries a subtle attack on the gospel, the next move is an outright assault. As he's done many times before, he attacks on the basis of greed. Remember, it's their hope of gain that's gone. He attacks them on the basis of race, that they're Jews, on idolatry, that it's unlawful customs for the Romans, and then the mob attacks. Look at the language, look at the violent language that describes the encounter. It says they were seized. They were dragged, they were attacking, they tore their garments, beat them with rods, inflicted many blows, and threw them in prison and put them in stocks. It's not a fun day for Paul and Silas. It was all awesome when Lydia was coming to Christ and the church was planted and things were going well, but then spiritual opposition comes and now things take a turn for the worse. How will Paul and Silas respond to this open attack on them? Well, let's look at verses 25 and following, what happens? They're in the jail in stocks. And it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Then when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then they brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. And they brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So how do Paul and Silas respond to this beating? Worship. They are singing hymns all through the night. They, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Paul knew why he was in Macedonia. Luke 21 tells this. Uh, Jesus makes this promise. He says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you. This is what Jesus says to his followers. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. 
This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's what Jesus promises his followers. And so what happens that night? They sing and they praise Jesus. And what happens? There's an earthquake. You can imagine, right? There's an earthquake. The jailer runs in and he asks the only question that matters. He's about to take his own life because if the prisoners escape, they're going to execute him. Paul says, don't. We're all here. He went to bed with them singing hymns, and now he wakes up, and he's convinced of the truth of Jesus. He asks, what must I do to be saved? Tell me about this Jesus of which you're singing. Tell me about this Jesus who when the doors open and he miraculously lets you out, that you'll stay and save my life. Tell me about this Jesus when you'll receive beatings and be mistreated, and you'll joyfully receive it. Everything that he had experienced had led him to the truth that Jesus must be real. And Paul answers his question. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What must I do? Nothing. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. You sure I don't have to do something, pay any money, say, say something? No, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and anyone else who believes. Listen, the gospel is not complicated. The gospel is not complicated. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. Bishop John Taylor Smith, who was the honorary chaplain to Queen Victoria and the chaplain general of the British Army during World War I, he, he was everybody's bishop. Um, this is what he, he used to speak at conferences and he always asked candidates for chaplaincy one question. If you're a candidate to be a chaplain in the British Army in World War I, he would ask this question. He says this, quote, Now I want you to show me how you would deal with a man. We will suppose I am a soldier who has been wounded on the battlefield. I have three minutes to live and I am afraid to die because I do not know Christ. Tell me, how may I be saved and die with assurance that all is well. If the applicant began to beat about the bush and talk about the true church and the ordinances and so on, the good bishop would say, that will not do. I have only three minutes to live. Tell me what I must do. And as long as Bishop Smith was chaplain general, unless a candidate can answer that question, he could not become a chaplain in the army. I'm dying. I have three minutes to live. What must I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's my saying to you today. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, what must you do to be saved? Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus. Call out to Him as Lord, turning from your sin. And what we learn here in this planting of this church is that Jesus can send you to a city. He can send you to a family like Lydia. He can send you to start a church. And he can send you to jail, all in the same couple of weeks, all according to his sovereign purposes. But the Philippian church shows us the power of Christ in the midst of persecution. Listen, persecution doesn't show a church, doesn't mean that the church is weak. Persecution means that the church is strong. I had one professor in seminary who used to say, God has cursed 
America's churches with blessing. One day he will bless us with cursings. That day might come, and we all need to be ready to stand for Jesus when that comes. Now as I close, I want to say that everything that we've read here today about this Philippian church should be true of every other New Testament church. It should be true of our church. At some point in history, listen, at some point in history, some 200 years ago, God called certain individuals to plant this church here in West Tennessee. It would not be here had not someone been called to come and plant it and to see that the gospel was preached here in Huntingdon. This church was birthed out of that calling. And throughout our history, God has continued to call out people here to believe on the Lord Jesus and to take the gospel from here to the ends of the world despite the spiritual opposition that existed then and continues to exist today. And so my prayer is that we would be a church like the one planted in Philippi. That we would be a church that is that God direct where God directs the mission of his servants, where God shows us the power of Jesus being preached and not the power of people being entertained. Where Jesus comes and he works in the midst of spiritual opposition, where Jesus comes and he shows us how to stand firm even in persecution. Would you pray with me then we'll have a time of invitation. Father, I pray you would bless the preaching of your word. And Father, we ask that Jesus would be glorified in our midst. Father, that we are here to proclaim Jesus and not ourselves. And Father, right now, I pray that if there are people here who need to respond to Jesus, they would come and receive Him as Lord, believing on Him and repenting of their sins and coming to be baptized in His name. And Father, I pray for others who need to join this church family. Father, as those who would covenant together to stand as a family to support and love one another for the sake of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.